a short-term win isn't necessarily a long-term gain. And I think if we let ourselves in politics become so much against the other side, we are losing the unification of our country. This episode, Setting Kids Up for Success and How to Move Forward in an Increasingly Divided Climate. I'm Daniel Lance, along with co-host Paul Gilman, and from Paul's Basement Studios, this is Podso One. Sarah Wall has a more diverse career than most millennials out there. From Democratic campaigns to Republican campaigns, from political think tanks to the food service industry, and from nonprofits to a global financial company. We catch Sarah mid-journey, and she shares some wisdom from her breadth of experience, including her thoughts on the nonprofit world versus the corporate world, what she wishes was different about Baltimore, and the roundabout path she took to finding her political stance. Here's Sarah Wall. So, okay. So Sarah Wall, you are, uh, you have one of the biggest hearts of anybody that I know. And I think that that manifested itself uh, when you went to go and start your career, because you worked for, I think, government research agencies and service industry, and you eventually landed at a nonprofit in Baltimore. Tell us about Baltimore. Well, tell us about the nonprofit and what it did. Yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, so I worked for a really small nonprofit um, when I lived in Baltimore. I actually was living in DC when I applied for the job. I really wanted to move to Baltimore. Um, I don't, I, I don't know why, like, I guess I was really under the impression that Baltimore was like a very cool, like hipstery city, um, which is kind of true. Like there's like bikes and stuff and there's a lot of like vegan food, but <laughs> it's like yeah, it's baby. not nearly as like hipstery as Richmond, Virginia, which is what I thought it would be like. It was not. So anyway, I applied for this job. Um, and I think the reason I applied for it was I really wanted to work um, at a small nonprofit. And the job that I applied for was as a field organizer. And I was happiest when I was a field organizer on a campaign when I was 21. Like I really wanted to get back into sort of a more of a political like place, more of a political vibe. Um, Cause at the time I was just working for a small business. Um, and yeah, so I applied for the job. The, the nonprofit was working on youth advocacy. So we were trying to teach young people in Baltimore at Baltimore city high schools, um, to advocate for themselves, mostly politically. Um, we were, we were working both at the city level in Baltimore city and at the state level in Annapolis. So my specific role was actually working with young people who'd been involved in the criminal justice system and teaching them to advocate for themselves at the state level in Maryland. So we were trying to change laws around juvenile justice, around young people being charged as adults in Maryland, um, and, and training up these young people who had been through those experiences to, you know, advocate for change on behalf of themselves and also for other young people who, you know, were involved in the criminal justice system. What does advocating for themselves look like? So, so 
we were working on it in a political sense. Like, of course, you can advocate for yourself in any sense, but we were working on it politically. So I'll, I'll talk about, you know, what we did. Um, we trained these young people to, you know, in public speaking, in meeting with legislators, in professionalism. Because, I mean, when you're talking about young people who've been involved in the criminal justice system in Baltimore City, like, you're you're not starting from a level where they've ever really had to be professional, where they've ever had to really put on a nice suit, you know, like these are these, these young people. So like, not only were we teaching them to advocate for themselves, you know, to legislators, you know, talking about criminal justice reform and what it would mean to them, you know, to political leaders, we were also teaching them life skills, you know, like owning a suit, like showing up to work on time, like just basic things that for a lot of these young people, they had really never been taught that before. Um, so it was a really eye-opening experience for me because I grew up in Virginia Beach. I went to William & Mary. Like I lived in a very kind of a small world, you know, in terms of like worldliness. Um, so it was really eye-opening for me to like live in, you know, inner city Baltimore and be working with young people that had literally never owned a suit before. And being able to bring those young people to Annapolis and like have them meet with Maryland state legislators about the bills and the, the pieces of legislation that we were working on was huge. I mean, it was a huge honor. Like it was just a really important part, I think, of my professional development, of my development, even as just as a person. Um, I really feel like I, I grew a lot um, from working with those with those kids. So, so your day-to-day -day involvement was, it seems like you touched a lot of different areas. You had, we were working with kids directly and also working with policy and working with legislators to try to change things. And one of the things that you and I spoke about a lot when you were working there was that you were specifically trying to get youths to not be tried as youths. No, sorry. You were trying to get youths to not be tried as adults, Yeah. Uh, but as youths instead. What does that mean from like a, a legal sense? Yeah, so if we kind of just dig in a little bit um, into Maryland criminal law um, for young people specifically. So young people, when they are charged with any one of 33 offenses, they are automatically considered adults in the eyes of the law. So I think they can be charged as adults as young as 14. So those would be for like the big offenses, like rape, first degree murder, first degree sexual offense. But for... 16 and 17 year olds, they could be tried as adults for less intense crimes, I guess you could say. Um, like they could be tried as adults for carjacking. We saw that often. Um, they could be tried as adults for first degree assault. And that was the one where I think we saw was abused most um, by prosecutors because young people, if they got into a fight, and they happen to have like a knife in their pocket, even if they didn't pull the knife, the police officer could probably would charge them with first degree assault because there's a bias in the criminal justice system to overcharge because you know that a judge is probably going to knock back some of those charges. But in the case of a 16 or 17 year old, when you're charged as an adult, you're automatically in the adult system. So even if a judge kicks back the charge to second degree assault or even third degree assault, that is still going to be on the young person's record because they were charged initially as an adult. So Basically what we saw, what, what you see a lot in, you know, all across the United States is paying for crimes in like an, an over-criminalized 
criminal justice system that we have. And it's really hard. It's really hard to get over that. And when you have something on your record that flags on your record, I mean, I was just talking to someone that I went to college with who had a noise violation on his record and wasn't able to start a job in the gig economy when he lost his job due to coronavirus. And we see that in Baltimore all the time. I mean, these, these kids who make this mistake at 16 or 17 years old, whether they get into a fight or whether they do something a bit more serious, like try to steal a car, that is going to be on their record forever, unless they can go through a lengthy legal process of getting it expunged, which, I mean, they don't even have the resources to own a suit, much less have the resources to know that they can get their, you know, record expunged. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about something that is really going to prevent these young people from whether it's going to school, whether it's getting a job, whether it's, you know, actually making good money to pay for kids or to, you know, just to live, just to eat. Um, it was really, I think it's really in our best interest to, to make sure that these 16 and 17 and especially 14 and 15 year olds are giving a, being given a chance to really go to the juvenile justice system where they're still going to learn. They're still going to be in, in some ways they're even held to a higher standard than in the, the adult criminal justice system because young people in the juvenile justice system, they really have to follow a strict schedule. They have to go to school. And in the adult justice system, they're, they're literally sitting in jail, like playing cards, you know? So, um, I think it's really in our best interest, both for the young people's development in jail and after they get out, um, to not have it on their record, uh, and, and to, to remain in the, in the juvenile justice system. So when prosecutors are prosecuting, let's say a 16 year old that's done something is there some kind of incentive for them to, uh, like you said, you know, make it as severe as possible or ask for the most severe charge because they know that the judge will diminish it somehow? So, so they basically try to anchor it in a, in a more severe place? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. Like, basically, it's pretty rare in our system, in our criminal justice system at all, even for cases to even go before a judge. Like, I think I think I read a statistic where like overall in the United States, like 3% of court cases actually go before a judge and 97% of court cases, criminal cases, I guess would be a better way to say it, um, are tried are just handled with a plea agreement. Like the person just pleads guilty and then they take the charge and then they go home or they go to jail, whatever the plea agreement is. So because of that system, because of plea agreements, we have prosecutors and police officers that are charging as to the fullest extent of the law was the way we put it, because in a plea agreement, it's going to be knocked down so that the young person pleads guilty or innocent or however they decide to, to work that. So basically that's a, and that's not just in Maryland, that's in the entire United States. Like we, we incentivize our prosecutors to charge as heavy as they can because when the young person or when the, you know, defendant pleads down, then that, you know, the prosecutor doesn't want to start with a meager charge and then have no punishment at all. Mm. The nonprofit you worked for, how effective did you feel that it was in accomplishing its objective? <sighs> Such a good question. <laughs> um, well, I will say we were a nonprofit of only eight people. So when, when you have these really big lofty goals, um, they're, and there aren't really the resources to accomplish those goals, it is very difficult to 
actually feel like you're accomplishing anything, you know, because we, with a staff of only eight people, there is just, you know, and, and I'm an optimist, you know, I'm an idealist. Like I want to accomplish what I set out to accomplish. I, I refuse to settle for anything less than that. But, um, yeah, so I would say it was, it was pretty discouraging to not really see and accomplish like what we were really trying to do all the time. Um, I think we didn't really have a lot of the support that we needed um, from our board organization, like our board of directors could have been more supportive. Um, and I, I think that we sort of lacked a real strategy to be able to move forward um, with, you know, a, a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, like these are going to be our benchmarks and our metrics of success. Um, so it was, it was, it was a, I, I learned so much. It was such a wonderful experience, but I think, I think the nonprofit world in Baltimore in general is really, we're really held back by a lack of really strategic thought about this is what we can accomplish. This is what we're going to accomplish. And this is what we have accomplished. Um, I think when you try and take on so much and you don't have a really clear and concise and honestly limited mission and vision for what you want to accomplish, you're not going to be able to do it. And you're not going to be able to keep your staff or keep your kids. You know, in our case, we're working with kids. We, we couldn't keep them encouraged if we can't let them know exactly what they're going to be doing, you know, within this limited time frame. Not yeah. And did you get a sense that people let their ideals get in the way of playing the quote unquote game? Yeah, definitely. I think that we all were very idealistic, um, but there just wasn't enough accountability, I think, for holding us, holding the staff, honestly, because you know, the people that I worked with, we all ranged from like 23, actually, no, there was someone who was younger. It was like 21 to 27. And so when you're working with really talented, bright idealists in their, right in their early to mid twenties, it's going to be really difficult without a person who's really holding them accountable, really holding them to the fire, you know, like, this is what I want you to do. Like, this is what I expect out of you. Um, and that's because everyone was idealistic. Like we were all just trying to accomplish the vision that we saw, the vision that we wanted to accomplish um, without really thinking about, you know, longer term goals and strategies. So I think, I think we really would have benefited from, from, you know, holding our feet to the fire, you know, of like, this is, this is what I expect out of you. Mm -hmm. And do you think that could have come in the form of more uh, just either seniority or more, like ruthlessly strategically minded people? Like how do you think that could have been added to your nonprofit? Yeah, I think, I think we probably could have used a bit more like ruthlessness. Like, um, you know, I know we're going to talk in a little bit about switching over to corporate, but when you compare it to a corporate environment and when you compare what I did at the nonprofit versus what I did in, in a more corporate environment, like I, was pushed. I was just pushed. And I think that because nonprofit people tend to be very, um, loving and they're very big hearted and very, um, vision oriented. Some of the details and the logistics of 
management of, you know, this is what I expect out of you. And if you don't do it, then I'm going to have to let you go. You feel that in a corporate environment in a way that you don't feel it in a nonprofit. Like, you know, every day in corporate that your job is sort of on the line and, and a nonprofit, or at least in the nonprofit environment that I was in, it can be a bit more like, Oh, like we're all friends. We're all working together. Like we're all like doing this. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people operate really well in that environment, but I do think that if you're going to accomplish what you set out to accomplish, there has to be, you know, stricter management, almost, yeah, ruthlessness, you know. <laughs> mm. I love it. <laughs> so if you had a, a magic wand uh, and could change Baltimore for the better after, how long have you lived there now? Uh, three, it'll be three years in August, so two and a half years. And for a while you were in the inner city and then you moved? Yeah. So I definitely worked in the inner city. The nonprofit was based right on the University of Maryland campus, which I guess isn't quite inner city, but it's right next to West Baltimore. And, you know, people know about West Baltimore from the wire and it's, it's a, it's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's pretty, uh, yeah, there's a lot of poverty. Um, and I lived, um, fairly close to Johns Hopkins hospital, which is more in a, it's, it's not in a great area of East Baltimore. Um, and then I moved to Southeast Baltimore, which is, is very nice. Um, so yeah, I, I lived in a, in a couple of different places, but. So you uh, moved around the city. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so you, I, I think that you, you got a good sense of the city and that from our conversations, it sounds like a, a troubled city relatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you could wave a wand and change, uh, something about that city, what would it be? I think the biggest problem facing Baltimore is, and this is probably going to betray some of my political views, but I really believe that the government stands in the way of like small businesses. Like I think it be, it is so difficult to open a business there. And that's true of large businesses coming in too. I mean, they had millions of dollars of incentives to get Amazon to build HQ2 in Baltimore and they didn't do it because there are there's so many burdensome regulations on the development of large and small businesses. I talked to a brewery owner who opened a brewery in Pigtown, West Baltimore, which is like very very pre-gentrification, like very early gentrification. Um and it took them a year and a half to get a liquor license to open a thriving small business in Pigtown, West Baltimore. And I just feel like if you loosened those regulations in a way that would benefit, especially African-American owned businesses to be able to open and thrive and bring people in, that would do so much for the crime rates, for the properties, for the schools, for the, I mean, it just, it would have such a cascading effect of benefits to people in Baltimore if they could just have fruitful employment that they were really proud of. I mean, like when you talk to these young people in this city, they all want to be a rapper. They all want to be a musician. They all want to be, you know, a basketball player because for them, it's literally more realistic to go and be in the NBA than it is to 
make a living for themselves, a fruitful living for themselves in that city. And I think that tells you a lot. Like, I think that there's a culture in Baltimore where people don't believe in entrepreneurship. They don't believe that they can, you know, go out and make it for themselves. And if you've told all these people for decades that they can't do it, that they'll never be able to get there or, you know, will slap, you know, a year and a half worth of regulations on a business that you try and open. I mean, you've killed the American spirit, I think, in that city. And so I think, yeah, that's what I really wish Baltimore would do is just expand their small business uh, atmosphere environment. Do you know what those regulations are? Like what on earth could could take a city an, a year and a half to grant a, a liquor license? <laughs> liquor license is actually a great example in Baltimore because the state actually controls every liquor license that comes out. Like it's all controlled by the comptroller, which is a position that I think it's actually, I think you actually vote for that person. But there is a set number of liquor licenses that can be in each city. And they've all been taken in Baltimore as in every other county. Like, like the state doesn't grant new liquor licenses. So in order for a liquor license to be released, a one of the existing bars or liquor stores has to give up that license in order for it to then go into the lottery. So there's fewer licenses available than there are for people who want them. And when a person leaves, like if, a, like if I owned a bar and I decided to no longer own the bar, like I wanted to sell it, that liquor license is also tied to the building. So then there's another process that you have to go through in order to release the liquor license from the building <laughs> in order to have it enter into the lottery. So it's like, and plus breweries are even a whole other special type of liquor license. Like it's mm. like a whole thing and it's all very bureaucratic. It's all very intimidating. And like I said earlier, like we're talking about young people in the case of young people, we're talking about young people who've never been taught professionalism they like don't even show up to work on time most of the time because they are carrying with them so many traumas and burdens from their own past so how do you expect a young person to be able to go through that process like if they wanted to open any other kind of store it doesn't even have to be like a bar or whatever like it could be like a clothing store or a cd store or whatever you know like there's regulations that are literally insurmountable for where these young people or even adults are coming from. I think that's a really reasonable answer. So, uh, Sarah, you, you, you leave the nonprofit and some would, would argue the next move may be a small, smaller for-profit, but you went big for profit. Tell yeah. me about uh, your rationalization, the transitioning from one to the other. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, my resume makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> but yeah, so I I really do have kind of a math sort of oriented mind. I, I mean, you wouldn't know it because in college I was a history major and a Russian studies double major. Um, so you would expect that like, a, you know, math or data analysis or everything, anything would like really scare me, but I really enjoy it. Like I, I really have kind of a numbers brain. I'm good at Microsoft Excel and I sort of had the opportunity when the nonprofit sort of fell apart, um, to go join a really large multinational bank 
because a roommate of mine was a recruiter there. <laughs> so it was not like a cute way that I was able to get in. I was, you know, I knew someone there. Um, so it, but it did allow me to really expand my, my skill set in terms of data analysis and, you know, obviously very focused on margins um, and on, you know, large, I mean, we were, I was working on a team that was dealing with like billions of dollars of mortgage-backed security mortgage-backed securities every single day. Um, so when you're in charge of that kind of data, then you are, I think, showing that you have, you know, a mindset that is capable of being able to, to manage that for a large multinational bank. Um, and that was important to me. You know, I was kind of in a place where I um, was sort of, my views were changing a bit politically. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something more in the corporate sphere. Um, and so this was just a, a really, really amazing opportunity to be able to, you know, show that I have more of a data-driven analytical mindset. You talked a little bit about some of the difference, differences between the corporate environment and the nonprofit. Nonprofits tend to have bigger hearts. Uh, mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. tend to be idealistic where corporate world tends to push a little bit harder on their employees. Certainly yeah. there's more pragmatism typically in larger companies. Uh, certainly more results oriented, it sounds like. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some of the other differences that you appreciated in the corporate world and maybe didn't appreciate? Yeah, I think, I think you know, in both spheres, actually, I found that there was a lot of strategy. Um, like we were at the nonprofit, I was always strategizing on, you know, how are we going to get this bill through the legislation? Like, how are we going to convince these delegates and senators to listen to us like how are we going to convince our young people to say the right things etc cetera, etc cetera. but not uh, nonprofits are strategic in a way that for-profits i think have really mastered a strategy i mean the bank that i was working for is has like hundreds of thousands of employees like all around the world and yet we all knew exactly what we were going to come in and do every single day in order to accomplish the mission of whatever team we were on. And I think that that sort of granularity in just your expectations as an employee can be missing in the nonprofit world. I mean, I would come in in the morning at the nonprofit and, you know, not necessarily know. And that's sort of, a, you know, that's sort of a symptom of the nonprofit that that I was at where I was you know I, I was entrusted with a lot of responsibilities but not a lot of you know granular this is what you need to do every single day um, and you know I didn't have as much responsibility at the you know at the bank that I was at but I felt like I knew exactly what I was going to do and I think that having that kind of structure having that sort of almost rigidity in like this person does this and this person does this and this team does this um is helpful for really accomplishing your goal at the end of the day which you know for the bank of course is to make money <laughs> yeah yes banks tend to uh, care a lot about the cash flow yeah definitely so i understand that you spent a semester canvassing for a democrat while you were in college uh and then after college and and, and you decided to leave what arguably was a comfortable job in the corporate world to uh, go work for a Republican in Ohio. That but, is right. <laughs> tell us about that wonderful uh, four-year transition. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, my resume makes no sense <laughs> to me, especially. Um, 
Yeah. So I, so I grew up um, in a very conservative house. My dad is, uh, or was, he's retired now. Um, but my dad was a, you know, a founding member uh, at an engineering firm and definitely has a very like small business, like deregulation, like all the sort of things that I was talking about with Baltimore. I really kind of, that's sort of grounded in my dad. Um, he's a very rational sort of small business kind of Republican. Um, and my mom is a bit more like soft hearted, like me. <laughs> so she grew up in a democratic family, um, really believes in the American dream. She's like very values oriented in that way. Um, and I, when I went to college, I sort of, you know, history majors, it's funny, actually, um, history professors are actually considered the most, they actually are statistically the most liberal professors of any discipline. Um, and I think that I was sort of in this point in my life where I didn't, I couldn't really reconcile like how to be, you know, a very like small business kind of Republican, like my dad, and also be very values driven and big hearted, like my mom, like without being a Democrat. Um, so I, and I also was kind of at a place in my life where I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be appreciated and I wanted, you know, I, I kind of, I went to a school, I went to, a, you know, William and Mary, which is a pretty liberal school, liberal arts school for sure. Um, and I found that people liked me more when I didn't say I was conservative. <laughs> so it's funny. It's like being in your low twenties, like, um, and, you know, or your upper teens even, and being on a college campus, it takes a lot of strength of self to go against the flow. And I just don't think that I really had that strength of self, nor do I really think that I was interested at that point in my life in pursuing what my political ideology really was. Um, so I ended up becoming really good friends with um, this guy who I also totally had a crush on. <laughs> <laughs> and he convinced me to intern for Monty Mason, who was running for the Virginia House of Delegates um, in Williamsburg, who was running in that district. So I interned for Ben uh, for like a month. And then his boss was a field director who was like, and at this point I was um, in, it was the summer between my junior and senior year and my field director, the field director, Ben's field director at that point was like, you are so good at this. Like you were built for politics. Like you need to be a field organizer. So I moved to Newport News, which is right north of Williamsburg and Canvas there was a, was a field organizer there from August until the election in November. And he like Tyler is a most political people are like very persuasive, like very people oriented. And he told me over and over again that like, I know you never wanted to do politics because I didn't, I wanted to do international aid at like a nonprofit in, um, in DC. He was like, I know you never thought about politics before, but I'm telling you, like you were built for it. You need to do Hillary's campaign. So, so I agreed. I was going to go do Hillary's campaign in literally December. I think it was even, I think it was started at the end of November in Iowa. And I like, wasn't really sure that I wanted to do it, but Tyler had convinced me that this is, this is what you need to do. And I, two days before I was supposed to get in the car from Virginia Beach and drive to Iowa <laughs> in the dead of winter, I couldn't get out of bed. I just could not get out of bed that morning. 
And I really think that it was the Lord was like, you really should not do this. <laughs> because can you imagine if I had done it, like, that's it, you know, like you don't get to change your political views, at least for like 10 years. If you, you know, go be an organizer on a presidential race, like that's it, like that is your resume. Um, and then of course, shocker, huge shocker to me then, especially like Hillary ended up losing and I would have been really out of a job. <laughs> so, cause that's what most people do. They join a campaign and then they go, uh, like work in the presidential policy or whatever. So, um, over the years, especially after I moved to Baltimore, I really started to see kind of what my dad meant. Um, when he was talking about, we need less regulation and we need more, you know, small businesses and, you know, the government just gets in everybody's way. And he sounds like a grumpy conservative, which is how I'd always thought of him. Um, until I actually saw the results of what happens when you have a huge government apparatus kind of sitting on top of this city, it sort of crushes the entrepreneurial life out of it. Um, and I really was convinced sort of that if we reframe the messaging of the Republican party to be more like we are promoting people working, like working at jobs that they love, not jobs that they have to go to every day and only, you know, make some pittance for it. But if we're promoting an entrepreneurial spirit, I mean, we will just set people loose into what they actually want to accomplish. Um, and so that's how I sort of um, made my transition back into being sort of, you know, I'm more libertarian conservative, I would say. Um, and that's how I ended up getting involved with um, Young Americans for Liberty. And they work for, they send out canvassers essentially um, for mostly Republicans. Libertarians are like their dream, but you know, their libertarian party isn't a real you know, powerhouse or anything. So, so I canvassed for um, a Republican in, in Ohio in March and then Thomas Massey for U.S. Congress. I did some work for him too before we all got sent home for um, uh, coronavirus. <laughs> so you, you came by your current political views very honestly, right? You, you went down a path and you were critically thinking throughout. And so I, I really appreciate it. A lot, a lot of folks uh, in their mid to late 20s are following what the crowd is doing or they're following what their parents think they should do, but you yeah. come to a very independent, honest place in your political views and you answered that question beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> so obviously uh, your, your plans, your trajectory has been changed by uh, COVID-19, uh, the pandemic here. So before the pandemic was recognized as a pandemic, what were your plans? And then now that the pandemic is upon us, what do you think your plans will uh, shift to? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, so, so I should also mention um, next month I'll graduate with my master's degree in political management. Through Congratulations. GW. Thank you. Yeah, that's, it's a two year program um, for me. You can do it on campus. For me, it was all online because I didn't live in DC at the time that I started. Um, so my goal was to work somehow in conservative politics. I think my dream job is to work in political polling. Um, I love the sort of intersection of political data and political strategy because really when you're talking about 
independent kind of small polling organizations, they are working directly with the campaign and they're finding out by surveying people in the district, surveying those people, like, what do you care about? Like, what do you think about your opponent if we tell you X, Y, and Z? Like, what do you think about the person that we're working for if we tell you X, Y, and Z? So in so doing, they are really crafting the strategy um, for this political campaign. And I am so drawn to that because it's, it's, it's like you're measuring quantitatively, you're measuring public opinion um, in order to really be the architect of political campaigns. Um, so that's my dream job. <laughs> I did actually apply for, um, you know, I applied for a job there uh, at one of these polling firms. Um, and then coronavirus has sort of delayed that. They haven't told me no, which seems like a good sign. <laughs> but they haven't told me yes, because we're all on lockdown. <laughs> so the goal is, you know, to really utilize my degree um, in 2020. Hopefully we have an election um, and I'll be able to actually utilize that degree at something like that. So uh, does campaign strategists become political strategists once, once the, the person's in office? And then you repeat every election cycle? Yeah, so, so basically pollsters specifically are more like campaign consultants. Like they work from, you know, campaign to campaign to campaign. Like, and Virginia is cool because Virginia has a political campaign every single year because if it's not a governor's race or, or a national race, then we even have, you know, state senator and delegates races. Um, so even those, you know, smaller races will still hire pollsters. Um, but for like, if you like, I don't know, for someone, if you're working on a political campaign for like Donald Trump or Joe Biden, then you will probably become a political strategist after that person leaves. But if you're more of a campaign consultant, that's what you do. Like you just get hired by these campaigns like every single year, which I'm more drawn to because I love politics for what it is. Like I, I think politics and political campaigns are so much fun. I think there's so much energy and I'm less drawn to policy, which is like the implementation of sort of what, you know, you're trying to accomplish, which is funny because most people who I talked to, like when I was on both political campaigns, um, all political campaigns, they are really doing it because they want to get into the policy. Like I am really passionate about X, Y, and Z. Like I'm really passionate about strategy. I'm really passionate about getting to know people and talking to people and persuading people. So I love the sort of political machination more so than the policy implementation. The, uh, when you say you love politics over policy, uh, you love figuring out the machine and how to make it work and how to uh, influence it? Or do you love like, because politics I think can become toxic if it's all you're about is, yeah, it's like a battle and we have to win. We have to win no matter how and all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, is it more about just the figuring out the puzzle in the game? Yeah, I think, I think politics does have a really ugly connotation in, our society, which I think is sad because what politics really is, is just convincing people and persuading people that what your person or you as a person, if you're the candidate, is, is trying to do is going to ultimately benefit the community at the end of the day. And I think that our politics has become very, very toxic um, in a way that's really dangerous. And people are more apt 
to talk about what the opponent is going to do that's going to be so harmful and so terrible. And they talk about that more than what they're going to do is going to benefit the community. Um, and I think that that's sad because at the end of the day, politics is really about persuading people that you're the best man for the job or the best woman for the job. Um, I think, you know, for me, the reason I love it is, is yeah, the strategy. Like, I think it's really fun to be able to tap into what people really want to see. And I, I guess in some ways that makes me, I don't know, it makes me sound a little like not personable. <laughs> like, I'm like not a good person, <laughs> but I, like, I, I think it's important to be able to, to be able to talk about issues from different ways. I think criminal justice reform is a really great example because you have Democrats that really care about criminal justice reform because they are horrified at the disparities between minority and white Americans and how minority Americans are so much more likely to be imprisoned. And what Democrats really care about are racial disparities. For one example, of course, they care about a lot more than that, but that's one example. Libertarians are really concerned about the size of government and about how government is not a positive force. That's what they believe, that government's not a positive force. And the criminal justice system is an extension of overwrought government power. So if you take criminal justice reform and you're trying to persuade your, you know, you're trying to persuade candidate X, or you're trying to persuade voters to vote for candidate X on the basis of criminal justice reform, you can persuade both Democrats and libertarians to vote for the same candidate if you talk about criminal justice reform in a different way to each of those candidates. And that kind of like strategic mindset, I think is so cool. Like, I think that's awesome. And I think we're not doing enough of it as a country. I think that Republican candidates talk to Republicans and Democratic candidates talk to Democrats. And as people have become more hyper-polarized over the last, uh, I'd say probably 10 to 20 years, then you lose that ability to talk about the same issue with different people in a different way. And I think that's really dangerous because if you don't see that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump care about the same things just in a different way, you're going to demonize whoever doesn't affiliate with your partisan, mm -hmm. you know, title. So it's not, it's not politics like digging up dirt and deciding when you should leak it to the press and trying to undercut your opponent. It's more politics like communicating, uh, especially across diverse ideological beliefs. Right. Right. And and making it so that we can you're kind of trying to unify people and steer the ship, even though people are all different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Politics is I just wrote my capstone actually for my master's degree was all about messaging, because I think political political parties, you know, and political candidates are really losing a lot of respect in this country because of the way that they're choosing to message themselves. It's like the Republican Party has become synonymous with the anti-left party or the anti-Democrat party. <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, the Democratic Party has done the same thing. Like progressives are anti-Trump or anti-conservative or whatever. And I think that when you do that, it's tempting because it's probably going to win you more elections because when people are mad, then they want to go out and vote against that other guy. But a, a short-term win isn't necessarily a long-term gain. And I think if we let ourselves in politics become so much against the other side, we are losing the unification of our country. Whereas if we choose to message 
our political parties as aspirational and optimistic. I mean, that's what the greats did. Like Ronald Reagan was super aspirational about his faith in American virtue. He was so optimistic about his faith in the American people. And Barack Obama was the same way. He was very optimistic about hope and change can come to America. And it's right here, right now. I mean, these are people who turned out millions of people who had never voted before. And by the way, Ronald Reagan won 61% of the youth vote. The youth vote. This is the Republican. So we are too afraid, I think, as conservatives, we're too afraid to talk to young people or to black people or to Latino people because we don't want to get in there and talk about the issues and go where we haven't gone before. And I think that is really dangerous for us politically. We can't write people off. We just have to figure out how to message to them about what they care about. Right. I'm going to switch tax to um, your volunteering and your outpouring. Specifically, uh, you went on a trip once to New Mexico, I think it was, to work with victims of, of human trafficking. And you talked to me on the phone about it, and it just seemed transformative. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that really was transformative. It was in Phoenix, Arizona. So you're close, but yeah, Phoenix. Um, I'll edit that out. so so yeah so when i was 23 i went to arizona um i had kind of come off like a really tough time in my personal life i was like really i didn't really know who i was i had been you know just i had i felt like i had sort of lost myself um and i had recently started going back to church and I really wanted to do something that mattered. I just, I wasn't really working in a place that I felt like I was really doing something that mattered. So I signed up to go on a mission trip. um, And what I ended up doing was working with a team of about seven other women. And we were working with girls who were in a group home. And basically a group home is sort of synonymous with an orphanage in the United States. Like these are young girls between the ages of like, I think 11 and 17, who had been victims of trafficking, human trafficking, um, or they were at very high risk of human trafficking due to living in, you know, an abusive home or abusive community or um, any number of, of risk factors. Um, but Phoenix is really a hotbed for human trafficking because it's a real hub. It's a sports hub. It's right near the border. Um, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of like commercial cause it's kind of, it's sort of on the West ish coast. So there's a lot of trade and cargo that comes in. So you just have a lot of people moving around and that puts girls at risk because it's really easy for a trucker to drive in, hire a quote unquote prostitute who happens to be 15 and take off with her, you know, across the border to Texas or whatever. So, um, what we were doing was working with these girls, um, just sort of, honestly, just hanging out with them. Like we went hiking in Sedona, which was amazing. Um, we went, uh, whitewater rafting. We went rock climbing, like all of these activities that were intended to sort of rebuild trust because these girls had in through their experiences, lost faith in adults. Like they had lost faith in the ability of adults to take care of them. They thought they were so much older than they actually were. And so like just being able to like see them play and hang out and talk and laugh is 
that is a form of healing because these girls had been treated for years like 30 year old women and they aren't, they're girls, they're teenagers. Um, so it was really transformative to me. Um, I felt like I really had a purpose just in being like, you know, an effervescent, enthusiastic kind of person. Like that was really put to good use, um, working with, you know, 20 teenagers for a week. <laughs> it's crazy to think about human trafficking as, as a whole kind of world that exists underneath the public consciousness. I know that it's really big here in Virginia too. I think 81 specifically is considered one of like the main arteries of, of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. so is this, uh, an issue that you want to, I guess, incorporate into your life of service and volunteering? Yeah, I care. I care a lot about, um, teenagers in particular. I am also give, like I give on a monthly basis, not a whole lot, but you know, like less than $20, but I give it every month, um, to the Dave Thomas center for foster. I think it's foster and adoption. Um, and they work specifically with older kids to, you know, hopefully ideally transition them out of the foster system and to actually get them adopted. Um, and it's really difficult because like most people who want to adopt, they want to adopt young, young kids. Like they want to adopt babies. And as soon as a kid is like maybe eight, nine, 10, like the, the chances that they get adopted goes way down. And I think that was sort of born my like passion for that and my heart for older kids. Um, it's sort of born out of two places, you know, it's born out of my experience with the girls in Arizona because they don't have anyone. And when you don't have someone, anyone who really cares about you as, you know, a teenager, you're going through a formative stage in your life feeling alone. And that is just, that's just in my thought processes, it's just not going to set you up into a positive path. You know, when you get to be, you know, 18 and then what you do really has, can have some pretty significant consequences. And I'm also really pro-life. And I think it's really important that if you are pro-life, if you're not, if you're against abortion, you really need to put your money where your mouth is in terms of adoption, foster and adoption. Because the reality is the majority of babies that are aborted every year, every day even, are usually from a minority community and those communities don't have the resources to care for these kids. And so if you're going to be against abortion, then you have to also really put your money where your mouth is when it comes to adoption and fostering, because you know, the kids that I support through the Dave Thomas center are probably not white usually, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that as conservatives, we need to be more honest about that and be more, you know, cognizant of the fact that, you know, we, what we say in terms of policy and what we believe in terms of policy has real world consequences. So put your money where your mouth is like, like care about kids who are being trafficked, like actually care about them, like actually do something about it or care about kids who are in the foster care system, like do something about it because it doesn't end with birth. It doesn't end with, you know, I wasn't aborted. Yay. Like it, it ends. Well, it never ends, but you know, one place it ends is when you're 18. Like, what are you doing for those kids from the time that they're born to the time that they're 18? Yeah. 
this is this is tangential to a really fundamental difference between uh, conservative and liberal thought. It seems that um, a lot of liberals think problems in society should be solved by the government and there should be governmental institutions and mechanisms in place to prevent bad things from happening and from people to be living in horrible situations and that people should always have a chance at life. And the primary uh, force behind that should be the government, making sure everybody has those chances. And then on the conservative side, I hear a lot of, uh, we should depend on the goodness of people's hearts and charities to fund and empower the causes and people that they care about. What do you think about that, the difference in paradigm? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of, you know, just speaking honestly, like conservatives are much more likely to give to charity than Democrats are. Like, I remember being shocked to hear that in 2019, Joe Biden gave like $400 to charity, like 400 total dollars to charity. Like I gave $400 to charity in three months in 2019. You know, and that's not to brag. That's, I mean, I tithe to my church. Like I give 10% of my income to my church, you know? And I think that what you believe in terms of, you know, is it government, is it charities? What you believe is going to formulate your actions. And I think that our world and our society and our country, and even our down to our city, you know, functions better when people care about each other. And a way that people care about each other is through charity. It's through, it's through sacrificing. Because what you're really doing when you're tithing, whether it's to your church or to the Dave Thomas Center, you know, you're sacrificing a portion of your income for the betterment of someone else. And those organizations, in my opinion, I am a conservative, in my opinion, those organizations use that money better than the government does. They, they don't spend it on bureaucracy. They, they have very low overhead. They have very low administrative costs. And you should investigate that, you know, before you decide to give to a charity because Save the Children is going to have a very different administrative overhead than the Dave Thomas Center or your local homeless shelter, you know. Um, and and you, you can investigate that because it's, you know, they, they have to publish that information as 501c3s. The government doesn't really publish its bureaucratic overhead because it's too complicated. So I think that our money is better spent when it goes directly to those causes rather than going to the government to be then distributed out in a very, you know, bureaucratic administrative way. Mm -hmm. We're going to spring one on you here. This is a question we ask all our guests. So if you've been listening... It's not a hard question, but it is a revealing question, right? Okay. okay. Right. So if you've listened to any other episodes... uh, Great, you know what's coming. Uh, if you haven't, then buckle up. So let's say you're about 25 years old and you have no obligations. Uh, you're not married or you know financial obligations, and you have this choice. You can either go to a stand-up comedy club every week and deliver a bit that's 10 minutes for six months uh, and work on your bits between, or join the military and serve for four years and you may or may not go uh, overseas and be deployed. That's the, that's the choice. What do you pick? So be a stand-up comic or join the military. Exactly. I think I'd probably join the military, probably more as an analyst role. Um, I think that, well, I mean, honestly, I'm very, 
you know, I'm like very selfish about it. Like I want to be able to put that on my resume. <laughs> benefits. Like when you actually can say that you're a protected veteran, like that's awesome. And I am the wimpiest person. Like I not actually, I'm like pretty wimpy though. I like couldn't hold a gun or like fire, you know, I couldn't do that. But I think it would be really cool to be more in an analyst role. Like you, I thought about doing maybe the national guard. Cause they have, I thought very briefly about it because <laughs> they have, you know, analyst roles where you can actually like be involved in the, you know, policy sort of analysis, but you don't actually have to fight. So I, I would be attracted to that. Dang. I feel like you almost snuck the question there a little bit or ducked the question because that seems to be neither, I don't know, that's not really military. It is military, but it's, I don't know, I kind of think risking your life and going overseas and working out every day and grinding is military. Uh, Paul, you were in the National Guard, right? No, I was an infantry guy that was doing a lot of uh, shooting of weapons and working out and that sort of thing, yeah. I love that, dude. So that's what I think of when I think of military. But, hey, hey, but Sarah gets to answer the question however she wants to answer the question. I, I, I know. Fine answer. She got us, dude. We're going to have to refine it. Yeah, she found the loophole. <laughs> well, hang on. Let me ask: Is it possible to enlist, like, let's say, the National Guard, and just in an in an analyst capacity? I mean, you you have to go through basic training, but yeah, after those, uh, I think it's eight weeks or ten weeks now. After those few weeks, then yeah, you can become an analyst. Yeah. Okay. You have to be selected for it, but yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure Sarah Wall would get selected. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a good answer. Um, Nobody's brought up the resume piece yet. It seems like every time we ask somebody, there's something that we haven't heard yet. So Yeah, we get something new every time. I, yeah, I love this cool. question for more. Yeah, that's a great question. That is a great question. It's interesting, out of the two hosts for this episode, uh, one chose comedy and one chose military. I, I, I served in the military, so it's pretty obvious I was the guy who chose military. Yeah. Uh, Dan, Daniel chose comedy, and Sarah, you're going to have to help me convince him to actually do the six months of stand-up. <laughs> Daniel, you'd be so good at it. <laughs> had I known, had I known that Paul would never leave me alone, if after I said comedy, I would have definitely said military. <laughs> Why did you choose um, comedy over military? I thought of it as a more grueling and more just masochistic endeavor than joining the military. And to me, the more suffering I put myself through, the stronger I'll be. Or at least that's that's whatever mode I was in at the time. So that's why I said it. That's so interesting because you would think that like the, the suffering would really come from, you know, having to go through basic training, for example, and work out so hard every day and potentially be shipped overseas to like kill people, you know? Right. It could, it's, it, the military could certainly be more suffering than the uh, stand-up. But stand-up, it, ta it, ta it taps into these, fears I have of needing approval and this, all this psychological stuff that yeah. keeps me awake at night. And it would be a crucible to go through six months of just, especially most of the times I'd go up, I'd probably flop, you know? So uh, it would just be a time of building resilience. And mm -hmm. I think I would come out of it mentally stronger. So that's why I was drawn to that answer. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's probably part of partially why I was drawn away from that answer. <laughs> because like it terrifies me. Like the idea of having to get up there because you know, the audiences are really tough. So like being able to like stand up there and give a even a 15 or 20 minute performance and have to 
suffer through them not laughing would be so like my worst nightmare. Yeah. Six months straight. Yeah. So, and I just figure, you know, run toward the, the noise, run toward it. <laughs> I can't remember what the quote is, but it's, yeah, if you hear something, uh, run toward danger rather than away from it. I don't know. That's something right. like that. I got you. Uh, so that's, that's the, uh, I envision there's this story. It was a book about a Navy SEAL. It's called Fearless. I remember reading it and it has such a profound impact on me because there's a scene in it when this dude, the Navy SEAL, is taking a bath at home and his wife is at home and it's late at night and the front door opens and somebody walks in and he realizes that it's nobody that he knows. So it's an intruder. And the first thing this guy does is get up out of the bed uh, and just sprint toward the front door in the nude yelling at the top of his lungs and the guy split the intruder just ran away and and i think to myself would i react like that you know if my family was on the line would i just get out and run naked at the guy he could have a gun he could have a knife and i've just been you know i I think about that sometimes and and one way to make me believe that i would actually get up out of the bathtub and run down the guy at the door would be going to stand-up comedy every week and wow trying try not to flop yeah. I don't know if that made any sense. That makes perfect sense. But I would think that the military would get you to do that more considering this guy is a Navy SEAL. <laughs> That's true. I, yeah. But I think that it's, a, it's more of a mental choice. I, I guess the fact that he had a, a physical dominant presence. I mean, the dude was a big guy. Uh, he was probably jacked. So that, that would help. But I think it was more about the fearlessness of it. Yeah. That's a really good point. So, Yeah. Very cool. So, Sarah, you, you do, you're about to finish your master's in political management, which is awesome. Do you have any more uh, educational aspirations ahead of you? Not at the moment. I My dad always really wanted me to go to law school. But to me, like I mentioned before, like law is sort of akin to policy, and that's just not really what I want to do. So I guess if I were to think about going back, back to school, it'd probably be law school, but I think I'm done. Like, I think, I think this is really where my heart is and this is really what I want to do. So I don't think that I'll need to do any more school. So campaign strategy and campaign polling, are you going to do that for the rest of your career? Or when you look back 20 years from now at how you spent the next 20 years, is there a ton of diversity or are you really committed to uh, campaign polling? I would like to hope and believe that the diversity in my resume is going to end soon. <laughs> I would really like to, to find exactly what I want to do and pick it and do it. And I think, I think that polling is it. And, you know, you can continue to grow in that field. Like you can, you can, you know, go up to being a partner at some of these firms, you know? Um, and I think right now that's sort of my goal. That's really what I want to do. Um, Daniel and, and his friend are very convinced that I'm going to run for office one day and I might do it. I don't know though. I mean, it seems like the people who like, from my experience, the people who should run for office are the people who are not running for office. And I'm a political person. Like I like the strategy, like I like the politics. And to me, in my idealistic mind, the people who should be running for office 
should not be political wongs. Like, <laughs> like, like we've had a few governors in, in, you know, Virginia's history who are very, very political and they're charming. And it just, to me, I, I want the people that run for office to be really down to earth, like very good people who really know the communities that they're coming from and really care about those communities. And I think if you're like me and you're really focused on political strategy and sort of the game and the machination and everything behind the scenes, you won't really have the interest to be really engaged in the policies and the people that you really, you know, are serving because you're a public servant. Um, and so I don't know, I don't really see myself running for office, maybe one day, but I, I think, I think, I think I like the strategy too much to, to run for office. <laughs> I, I think you can uh, find yourself in a place where you feel really balanced amongst all of those aspects and uh, be a great candidate. You certainly have the intellect. You certainly have the passion. Uh, and so, yeah, you should give it serious thought. <laughs> Sarah Wall, 2048. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> but, I'll be dead by then, Daniel. No, you won't, dude. I'll, even if you do die, I'll just sit you up in the chair and put the microphone in front of you. <laughs> It'll be a two-dimensional cutout or something, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah take, get a picture of me when I'm uh, like 25. <laughs> so, Sarah, we had a blast. It's a bummer that we couldn't be in person. Uh, you're very engaging uh, virtually, but we would love to have you back in person uh, to do this again for sure. That would be great. So I, D Daniel was really excited about having you on. Uh, he pumped you up, and you, you're everything he said you were going to be. So I really appreciate <laughs> you coming on. Uh, thanks, Paul and Daniel. It's really been such a pleasure. You were just a ray of sunshine, Sarah, and it's always great talking to you, and I'm, I'm so glad you are able to come on. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you know when our episodes come out. Thanks for listening.